Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Air Force Staff Sergeant Scott Sather. Staff Sergeant Sather would join the Air Force in 1992 as a combat controller, and by the start of the Iraq War, he would be serving in the Air Force's 24th Special Tactics Squadron. So the 24th Special Tactics Squadron is the special operations unit within the United States Air Force. There's a lot of jobs in that unit, and one of them is combat controller, what what Staff Sergeant Sather is doing. The role of combat controller is pretty complex, and as we become more and more reliant on air power, so, so important on the battlefield. So at a high level, a combat controller runs air ground communication. Now, throughout history, throughout military history, you know, when we first started to have aircraft overhead in World War I, there at times was no communication. Um, and then the communication was anybody who had a radio and we could get a frequency with the aircraft could talk and maybe direct strikes. Now we've gone in all directions here. And, you know, in terms of how much training and qualifications do you need to really help with the coordination with aircraft. Now, anybody can get on a radio and talk to a pilot, but in order to do certain things, you're going to ideally have gone through certain training. And that training is, is what makes somebody a combat controller. So Staff Sergeant Scott Sather is a combat controller focused on the air ground communication. What that's going to entail are things like what come to mind, directing airstrikes. So he's going to be on the ground helping to provide targeting information for lethal airstrikes from any number of platforms, from um, drones to fighters to bombers to um, A-10s to attack aviation, any of those things. Staff Sergeant Sather is going to be qualified to direct that strike. But then there's a lot of other pieces to this as well, which makes it an incredibly complex job. So one of the things is that he is um, able to identify an airfield or a landing strip and let other units understand and pilots understand what can land there. So just because there is a patch of concrete that somewhere on a map says it's an airfield or an old airfield doesn't mean that everything can use it. So remember the military aircraft or the aircraft used by the military are big. They're heavy. Sometimes they're carrying tanks. That plane can't land in the same place as, as you know, a neighborhood um, community, small little airport. It wouldn't work. Just because it's an airfield doesn't make it an airfield. The close or the combat controller, one of their jobs is going to be to be on the ground and recognize what type of aircraft can land at that airfield and send that up so it becomes an asset to be used in the fight. They also serve as a forward air controller. So think of all of the stuff that's going on in an airport up in the control room. And to a degree, the combat controllers can be forward deployed in a combat zone running that mission for aircraft overhead, letting people into the airspace, moving them out, directing them to move up, move down, come and go. The role of a combat controller is incredibly complex. Combat controllers do not generally deploy by themselves. You're not going to have just a combat controller out there in the war zone. They're going to be attached to units that are designed to be on the ground out there by themselves. In the case of Staff Sergeant Scott Sather, he's going to be attached to the U.S. Army 75th Ranger Regimental Reconnaissance Detachment, RRD. 
So this is a small elite special operations unit within the U.S. Army. And the reason you have these people attached, the reason that it works the way it does is who's better, who's better trained to talk with pilots than the Air Force? So the Air Force is going to train people in these skill sets. It's going to be their, their constant training. And then they're going to go out and work alongside ground units. The reason that's important then is you have somebody on the ground who's able to better relay things for the mission. So the combat controller on the ground is going to have a few mission sets, especially Staff Sergeant Sather serving with the Rangers in Iraq at the start of the invasion. One of the things is for as, as great of targeting pods and cameras we have on aircraft, you can't see everything from up above. And you, don't, you just don't get the full picture from 30,000 feet. But somebody on the ground who's been watching that target for a day or even three hours is going to have so much more context than the pilot that comes on station for 10 minutes. So you have continuity on the ground. That's really, really important. The combat controller is going to be able to paint a picture to the pilot. So remember, aircraft, they can't hover, they can't hang out overhead for 12 hours at a time. They're going to come and go. So in the course of a six-hour mission, he might have, the, the, set, the Ranger Regiment that he's serving with might have 15 different aircraft come and go. Somebody has to constantly update those aircraft, who they are, what they're doing, where they're headed, what to be on the lookout for. That's the combat controller. Taking charge, everybody who checks into the airspace, he's given an update, so they're on the same page. Again, if it's a new aircraft every 30 minutes, it becomes very burdensome to constantly get them up to speed. So you have somebody like your combat controller who does that. They're able to talk Army. So what I mean by that is they have to be able to understand what's going on on the ground so they can effectively relay and leverage the assets in the air. A lot of times combat controllers are going to be talking out of multiple radios, one for the unit, at least one for the unit on the ground and one for however many aircraft are coordinated above. So they have to be able to understand without grabbing the soldier in the army saying, I don't know what that means, or what do you mean we're going there or any of that. They have to be able to listen to that conversation. They have to be able to listen to that conversation and relay to the pilots, 10,000 to 30,000 feet up in the air, how you can support us. So they're carrying multiple radios, having multiple conversations going on at once. And, and something that an, an incredible skill with these combat controllers is that they can help to really leverage American air power, right? So we tend to think that there's a, you know, maybe they get in contact on the ground. We're going to call an aircraft in. Aircraft's going to come in, hit the target, and move on. It's never that clean. What ends up happening is they're sitting over a target. Maybe there's an engagement, and they've got an A-10 overhead getting ready to, and they're getting ready to talk them onto a target. The A-10 might have 45 minutes of time on station. They're going to be there for a while. And then an F-16 shows up and they only have eight minutes of station time. Well, the combat controller has to recognize and will, because they're awesome at their job, that, hey, if we want to use that ordinance from that F-16, I've got eight minutes to do it. So he will direct the A-10 out of the airspace, maybe move them up to 27,000 feet, call the F-16 down, send the targeting information to the F-16, carry out the strike, they go home, and the A-10 moves back into the airspace to pick up afterwards. Those are the things going through the head of a combat controller on the ground. That's incredibly complex when there aren't bullets flying. But his job is going to be, Staff Sergeant Sather's job is to do that, and he does do it with bullets flying all around. So let's look at Western Iraq in 2003, and or really the Iraq picture in 2003. If you remember, the invasion is going to kick off in on uh, March 20th. It's going to be a ground invasion, and as we know now, it comes up from the south. That wasn't known to the world. It wasn't known 
most importantly, to Saddam and his top generals. They had to prepare that there could be forces coming from any direction. Now, if you look at a map, you have to understand if you're Saddam that there are a few areas where it's it's possible U.S. forces could come in and others where it's not so possible. So where it's not possible is going to be Syria. The U.S. Army is not going to be coming through Syria. We know that pretty, pretty clearly. We can also be pretty certain that the U.S. Army is not going to be coming, or the U.S. military, excuse me, is not going to be coming through Iran. So it narrows it down. But the issue for Saddam is Turkey might be fair game. That's north. Jordan, west, and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, kind of south and south and west. All of those are reasonable to expect the U.S. to move across the border in those locations, which means Baghdad sitting right in the middle of Iraq, which is going to be the goal of an invading force, could realistically be hit from the southwest or north. That presents a problem to Saddam because where do you position your forces? So you have to meet the enemy at some point, but if you don't know, you can't overplay your hand. So if Saddam knows 100% without doubt the entire invasion is coming from the south, coming from Kuwait, well, then he can put his entire military focused on the south. And he can put every ounce of manpower and equipment and, and weaponry he has to stop that advance. But he can't be certain because we could be coming through Turkey and we could be coming through Jordan. Not to mention the airborne capabilities. And there would be kind of diversionary airborne drops uh, to take part or to, to help with the invasion. Staff Sergeant Scott Sather's mission with the Ranger Regiment is going to be, or with the unit that he's serving with in the Ranger Regiment, is going to be to enter Western Iraq and serve two major purposes. First, they're going to aim to capture any high-value targets that are attempting to leave Iraq and flee into Syria. The reason that we think that's likely is if you are an Iraqi general or anybody of power in Iraq and you're trying to get out, you know, Let's do a flip from what we said earlier. We know they're not going to go to Kuwait. They're not going to go to Saudi Arabia. They're not going to go to Jordan. They're not going to go to Turkey. They're probably not going to go to Iran. Some might, but many won't. So if you're an Iraqi general trying to get out of Dodge, Syria is your place to go. Now, this would be an issue throughout the war. When we talk about foreign fighters flowing into Iraq, it's a Syria pipeline. I mean, that's just where it's a sieve on that border. So... Staff Sergeant Sather and his unit are going to be tasked with, one, capturing any high-value targets that are trying to flee Baghdad and flee Iraq at the start of the war. Two, they're going to act as, as, a, as a diversionary force. So remember, again, if Saddam knows the entire U.S. invasion is coming from the south, then he can put his entire defense in the south. But he can't. He has to defend against multiple avenues of attack. Staff Sergeant Sather and unit, their job is going to be to make it look as though there is a major American offensive coming in from the west of Iraq, which means that Saddam has to at least consider it. You can't leave the Western approaches to Baghdad wide open then. They're going to, this, this mission in the west is going to include quite a few different special operations units on the ground, um, a lot of airstrikes, which of course Staff Sergeant Sather is going to be coordinating and and kind of the lead man in doing that. They're also going to at times have American armored elements. I think a, a platoon or two of American tanks in order to make it look again, like there's this massive, you know, 15,000 strong American division moving in from the West. And what that does 
is it forces Saddam to keep some troops in Baghdad and to the west and to the north. There's a, a garrison in Tikrit that's a little north of Baghdad um, that he's going to keep troops in as well. Now, we eventually have to get to Baghdad. So just holding his troops in Baghdad isn't necessarily a giant victory, but it does allow the Americans to keep going, knocking off smaller units as they go. Now, the the mission in Western Iraq with that Scott Sather was a, a major part of was a success. On April 6th, about two weeks after American troops crossed the berm into Iraq, on April, well, excuse me, on April 5th, Task Force 164 Armor, part of the 3rd Infantry Division, would make their move into the Baghdad International Airport, right on the outskirts of the city. The next day, American mechanized units would push into downtown Baghdad. And one of the major reasons that the Americans saw success through the heavy, heavy fighting moving from south to north into Baghdad is because Saddam couldn't meet them with the full brunt of his defense. He had to keep forces west, he had to keep them north, and he had to keep some in Baghdad. That's due in large part to the efforts of Scott Sather, Staff Sergeant Scott Sather, and his unit. So as American forces are entering Baghdad between 5, 6, 7 April, and the fall of Baghdad, I think, would be officially recorded as maybe the 9th or the 10th, just a few days later. Of course, there'd be substantial fighting for, well, years to come. But the official, as the books write at the fall of Baghdad, was uh, the first week or two of April. Now, with American forces in Baghdad, forces shifted to this other garrison in Tikrit, a little further north. And as Staff Sergeant Sather and his unit made their advance towards Tikrit, uh, Staff Sergeant Sather was killed at the age of 29 on April 8th in and around Tikrit, Iraq. He would be awarded posthumously the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star. And talk about a, a, a major impact that a few people can have on a war. There was... So much fighting leading up to Baghdad and incredible heroism all along the path and on all the fronts in every direction. This was just a fight across the board. But if you think about the impact that one man can have, so he's in a special operations unit, already an elite group, already a small group with an incredible mission of, of creating this diversion that they're a much larger unit out there, which they did successfully. But anybody on that team is important. But how about the guy whose job it is to leverage the American American air power? Probably the greatest asset we have or the greatest advantage we have in the thunder run on the way to Baghdad and in the toppling of Saddam's regime. He's a linchpin to that unit. Couldn't have been more important. An incredible job. And because of his actions... Um, I think they probably his actions probably reduced the amount of fighting leading into Baghdad, his unit and 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 his actions. So an incredible job by Staff Sergeant Scott Sather. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.